scary nature of you know you, it's that's terrifying thinking that someone could be in your house and you have no idea that they are in your house and we sit here now i am thinking that and it's a scary presence <laughs> it is scary although i'm not home alone right now so you are now listening to linguini's dough Hey everyone, Uh, before we start rolling this dough around, I just thought I'd let you know that this episode isn't about anything too specific. We interview Jack Pierce, he's a horror author. Um, So we kind of talk about his books, horror movies, Just we just kind of have a discussion. There's nothing too specific on it. Um, With all that in mind, let's give this dough a spin. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Linguini's Dough. Today we have Jack Pierce. Uh, He was on an episode earlier in June, around then I think. Um, awesome guest, and today we thought we'd bring him on for the day of Halloween. So the time this is airing, it's Halloween, everyone. So happy Halloween. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Jack Pierce, the best-selling author of Under Morning Star, The Suicide Diaries, and Condemned. I uh, wrote about I wrote eleven books total. Most of them went to number one on the horror charts, and and I am just doing a podcast now called Terror Tracks, where I talk about you know the horror industry and um just writing publishing life as a horror author just everything horror related and you know just a few more segments just beyond that but um that's the main point is just letting you have a insider look to what it's like being a bestseller and all that so yeah and i think it fits perfectly being that it is halloween thank you for being on um so i've been working on a new story and it's one that i've been playing around with for a while it's originally called aftermath and it was going to be about a serial killer who left videotapes uh like vhs tapes at like the crime scenes or whatever but after i've been watching the halloween series uh the last couple of days it really got me wanting to change that into a serial killer that was like one of the worst of all time escapes from prison and the main character has to chase him around sort of like dr loomis did and i know that's derivative and everything but i just think that that'd be a fun story to tell because i really love that sort of you know ordinary man chases a monster down before he can kill people and tries to stop him sort of thing i just i don't really feel like horror has enough of those you know there's really not that many you know when it comes to you know a monster versus a man like you know usually it's like jason goes around killing everybody at a camp or you know freddy's killing people in their dreams but it's you know not like that halloween thing of one guy hunting the killer you know instead of the killer hunting the guy so kind of like that regular day person chasing that hunter yeah because that's what dr loomis was he was just a doctor he wasn't a cop he wasn't a military guy or nothing he just was trying to hunt down michael myers before he killed everybody yeah, uh, for those don't know who don't know who is Michael Myers, he is the slasher villain of the Halloween series. So you're you're writing a book about this at the moment, or has it just been on your mind? It's 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 in production right now. It's very early production. I have a few others. Like I'm working on another sort of uh, version of the Snow White Murders, like a sequel to the Snow White Murders, which I think is really good. Uh, all this is on Whatpad, by the way, whatpad.com slash Jack Pierce books, where I'm posting my stuff that I'm writing, just sort of letting the community see the projects and everything while they're works in pro- uh, progress, you know, because with the editor being gone, well, I mean, I have a new one, but with the developmental editor, you know, Max Sand, Lotus Token, whatever, with him out of the picture, I kind of need that, you know, person to bounce stuff off of. So I figured, why don't I just go to the Terror Tracks community or just a community that, you know, horror in general and let them, you know, give me feedback on how the stories are shaping up. And if it's crap, you know, we'll scrap it and do something else. But, you know, I just, I don't like working in a vacuum. I think it's really hard to work in a vacuum with, you know, no feedback at all from people. Cause you know, I can write these books that sell thousands of copies, but if no one's, you know, reviewing it or, you know, telling me directly, okay, this book was great, but this part sucked, you know, you never hear any of that. So it's kind of hard um, doing it without him. But at the same time, he just, me and him just finally got to a point where we just couldn't work together anymore. And that was it. So 
And I think, yeah, it's very difficult to get uh, people to be like, yeah, this part about your podcast or this part about your book sucks. Um, so, I mean, that's good that you had that editor for that time being. Um, are you still in the process of finding a new editor or have you already found that editor? No, I have somebody that I just pay to do the editing when it's done. I, like, I don't deal with developmental editors anymore. And, you know, that's kind of difficult. I think writing was a bit easier and also a bit harder with him around because a lot of the time, you know, he never, he didn't tell me no very often, but when he did, it was usually for a good reason. But I just finally got tired of having to wait around like all day to continue writing the book, waiting on his approval for something, you know what I mean? So it just kind of that and just personal issues that we're not going to get into, but it just, it, it became a hindrance after a while, you know, at the beginning it was great because I had somebody to bounce off of, you know, if I got in a rut, then I had somebody to basically pull me out of the ditch. that would be writer's block. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean? So I had that and that was great. You know, that was a great motivation thing and you know that helped me write all those books so fast because i basically had like not a personal trainer but i had someone that was a horror fan that really followed the horror writing genre so i basically had like a horror community expert that i was writing to my target audience is what i was basically doing i'd write the book he'd read it he'd say yeah or no to something and we just sort of sometimes I agree with them and change it. And other times I just keep it and just, he had some boneheaded ideas and I had some too, and they just didn't work out. But, um, it, it was good to have somebody that was able to just be there. That would sort of be like the reader, you know, a reader that knows how horror novels are supposed to be written. Well, basically. And I think that, you know, even though we have our issues part on a personal level and a business level, I really think that a lot of my success or at least early success, you know, everything that happened before the Snow White Murders and Dreamer came out was due to him. And I think that, you know, he had some um, good merit to it, too, with the with Dreamer, especially because he was very involved with that one you know, as a developmental guy and Snow White Murders, too. But he just the final product was not what he would have wanted i think with the snow white murders but i released it anyway but i think snow white murders came out great and i think a lot of other people thought it was great too so you know he just i don't know i think he just i don't know what it was about the snow white murders he just didn't enjoy that one and i i loved it so mm -hmm. i have a couple thoughts in mind on that so when he edits it does he do it in like small portions or do you get the whole book done and then i uh, will just start with that for now what is that? No, like? no, he didn't do any actual physical editing. Like he didn't go in there with Grammarly or, you know, any type of grammar tools. He was a developmental editor. Basically, he was sort of like, you know, your uh, beta reader, I guess is what you would call it. Somebody that sits there and reads the product before it comes out to to give their feedback to you. And also if they they might come up with an idea like, you know, it would be really cool if this character went this direction or this, you know, we can introduce this new character, you know, that, that would really fit well with this scene or this scenario or this backstory or, you know, and he would just sort of throw me ideas here and there. Like 99% of the book is me, you know, the final product is a hundred percent me because I edited and rewrite everything, but he did, you know, he created a few characters that are very integral to the plot of some of the stuff. He created the cults from Cyra and Ravelum. He came up with that. I give him all the credit for that. And I named them, but uh, he came up with the Cyra cult, I think, and Mori, which was from Under a Morning Star and Dreamer. I think he came up with Mori. I came up with most of the rest of the people, Blaine and, and all of those people. But, you know, he, he did have some input on some of the characters so i can't take his you know i kept him even though we had our thing and the legal troubles that ended up being where i put myself as the author and put him as the editor on the credits i mean he's still you know i never said that he didn't contribute anything you know what i mean i didn't take him off the listing entirely so yeah so it was kind of like continuity was uh yeah, he really helped with that a lot, especially between the books when you because Snow White Murders Dreamer and Honor Morning Star, he really read through them so many times that if I wrote something that was wrong continuity wise because we were writing two prequels, basically two uh books that came before in the timeline, 
you know, he knew Under Morning Star so well, better than I do, even now, probably, where he was able to, you know, oh, that doesn't work because this thing happened in the future or whatever. Or this, that doesn't, no, we can't do it that way. That just, that would screw this up. And he was, he was great with that. And that's why I think those big novels like Dreamer and Snow White Murders came out so well and how they all connected so well without any real plot holes or mess ups anywhere. If you could describe him in a horror kind of tone, uh, you want to give that a shot? He was kind of like me. We were basically almost like the same type of author, really, because, you know, we he was, I was really into the slasher stuff, but I also loved, loved Jacob Slatter and Silent Hill. And he was the same way as me, but, you know, he was a little bit more into the, the magical side of it, I guess. Like, so, like dark fantasy was something that I think he liked. And, he sort of injected the cults having sort of like Skyrim powers and stuff, but you know, it wasn't that much. It wasn't like, you know, they had different spells and mages and, you know, like, like colleges for magic and all that, but you know, they had different powers and sort of like, you know, light fan, like final fantasy, you know, how final fantasy, you know, you can cast your spells, but they don't make it super unrealistic and they don't depend on it constantly. You know, like, you know, you have your fire spell and your healing spells and all that, but it's just still not the main focus. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just sort of like a side thing, just like a side characteristic. Because they don't really use their magic powers much in any of the books, but, you know, the villains have a few that do certain stuff, but most of it's grounded in reality, so. It's like if humans had this nice little... Um, just like a third eye, you know, just, just useful yeah, enough. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's what we were kind of going for. We didn't want it to be ridiculously over the top, like making super superheroes or anything, but you know, I think that would have been neat. And, um, under morning star had a second, uh, part, like a third act, well, not a third act, but like almost like a long, like a 90 page epilogue that, you know, after the story was over, it just like kept on going after that, like it continued two years later. So almost a sequel to it that never got released. And I'm thinking about eventually just, I don't know, I need to read through it and see if I can just release it as a, as a short that w has a different character or just remix it one way or another. But because I wanted to do something different with the sequel to Under Morning Star, and I'm still figuring out what I want to do with that. And I've not really... The only book I've ever made a sequel to was the Snow White Murders thus far, like a direct sequel where, you know, it happened directly after, you know, a couple years after and everything's tied together. Cause mainly it's not that it's hard to continue a book, but it's hard to sell a book and that nobody bought the first one kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. So it's like, you really have to depend on the audience buying, you know, book one to understand book two. And that's really difficult to pull that off unless you're doing something like, you know, James Bond, where it's just, you know, you don't really have that much interconnecting. It's just, you know, Bond goes on an adventure and on and on and that's it. You know, and then he gets Bond girl bookends and then the next one begins and it starts all over. But I th no, I think there was some continuity in the old stuff in the original novels and the, the early stuff that, you know, Connery did, but I don't think there was really much continuity at all after Connery left, but, you know, maybe a little bit in the Roger Moore era, but absolutely none in Brosnan like at all. And I don't think any in Timothy Dalton either. So I don't know if that's a weird series. That's a weird, but I, I always, I wanted to write my own bond book too. Cause I always love that sort of idea of just having a hero. That's just a guy going on these fantastical adventures and fighting big, you know, villains and stuff like over the top, you know, bond stuff. I love that. And I think that'll be fun to write, but yeah, right now I'm writing my own Halloween sort of thing. And that's going to be called uh, never sleep again. Oh, let's uh, dive into that process. Um, so most of your target audience is the people that like those horror movies, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, with what was the new book that you're kind of working on right now for Halloween called again? Uh, it's Never Sleep Again. Never Sleep Again. Um, well, let's start. Why, why is it getting named Never Sleep Again? I don't know, but it sounded creepy to me when I was thinking about it. It was originally called Aftermath, but that just, you know, even though that's a great book title, it doesn't tell you anything. I'm definitely more frightened by Never Sleep Again. I think that Aftermath would be a great title for like a post-apocalypse thing. So like Fallout, you know, Aftermath or, 
you know, the road, just stuff like that sounds really great for like a post-apocalypse, but this is a modern day. So, and you know, I've thought about making this the sequel to the Snow White Murders, but it doesn't work really because the Snow White Murders really didn't have like it, it doesn't fit with the character that I've written so far in the first 30 pages where it's a guy that you know is still haunted by some serial killer he locked up and he thinks the murders are starting again but you know Snow White Murders didn't really end with a killer that could come back you know it's just or I don't know I just I've written all these different books and they just I guess they're sort of it's kind of, it's just like i said it's hard to write a sequel to something because you have to rely on the reader reading the first one and not that many people i mean there's no white murders that okay but it, it didn't do anywhere near as good like it would make a lot more sense to bring back david kane from under a morning star than it would be sam wolf from snow white murders for this case it would make a lot more sense if i made a david kane novel than anything but i just have to figure out where to put star <laughs> just i don't know where to put her I guess she's at home. I don't know, but I just, I think her story arc is over unless she gets knocked up in as a kid or something, but. Do you know if uh, Snow White, or yeah, of course you know. Um, does Snow White uh, horrors, uh, is that Snow White getting murdered or is that Snow White being the murderer? No, it has nothing actually to do with Snow White herself. It's um, actually a play on words that the people that are dying from this disease that is being infected on them by this you know outside force that i won't spoil they all turn pale white and die mm. like they're poisoned like it seems like they're poisoned and that's what like, you know like the poison apple and all that yeah and that's why i like the cover has that like that water and like the apples falling into the water i just thought that was awesome looking it's really simplistic but i love i thought it even better no i think that one's perfect but i think and even if I ever redid the cover, I'd like have like a apple with a knife going into it with blood coming out or something. You know, it'd be interesting if we uh, as well talk about maybe some of the horror aspects you've wrote in your books and compare them to maybe stuff that's gone on in your life, if you'd be interested. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I need to actually read one of your books still. <laughs> but, it's fine, yeah. Do you think there's anything disease-related that's in your life, I guess? Not maybe physically, but like, I don't know. Just Is there any correlation? No, Snow White Murders just sort of came out after a breakup, and I just wanted to, I just cranked out a novel in two weeks. Um, there really wasn't that much real life injected into the Snow White Murders. Uh, it was really my attempt at sort of blending Law and & Order and Silent Hill together, which I think it came out really well. I think that's a great blend. Having that sort of, you know, like it starts out as a law and order sort of thing and then turns into a more Silent Hill trippy kind of thing um, after it just sort of goes off the rails like all my books eventually do. Because I don't know, I just feel like if I stay like that's just the signature thing when it comes to novels is, you know, things just kind of go off the rails at some points. That's what happened in, you know, Under a Morning Star, having a dream or having a Snow White murders. You know, I don't think it really happened. And, no, it happened in, yeah, Harvest, no, Harvest Children stayed the same throughout pretty much. I don't know. But anyway, the point is, I think that Under a Morning Star had the most injected into it. But I think that a lot of my other books, like uh, like I said, Never Sleep Again, the one I'm working on right now, I think that, that I was reading, you know, chapter one and I could see me, you know, complaining about my ex, you know, my ex that we don't need to go into. but um that i've brought up on other shows and everything but i i just saw her in there and i think that she was actually the partial inspiration no i don't know i think she might have been the partial inspiration for bring me a dream but i, I don't really know if she was kind of not really i think she's i have a different book i have all these books i'm working on at once so i have like a million different projects it's sort of like you start one you lose interest or you just have writer's block so you write something else and i have like i think i looked at whatpad and i uploaded like 19 stories and only 11 have been released so it's hard finishing them yeah it's hard some of them just come out like it's nothing and other ones just are impossible to finish but you know i have another one i, I think is would be a great one is uh the girl who stole the stars i think that'd be a great one about a guy that um every time he goes to sleep there's this girl in his dream that you know he's in love with and everything and one day she disappears and 
never shows up in his dreams anymore so he goes to the sky blue headquarters the same place from dreamer and um joins the dreamer project sort of like almost like a spinoff to dreamer and but it's more like a spent like a combination of dreamer and bring me a dream where he goes into the dream world searching for her so you could almost think of it as like a retelling for bring me a uh for dreamer but more of a bring me a dream plot i guess because bring me a dream was all about a guy that was obsessed with a campground that he kept dreaming about and he you know where he had all his friends and his life didn't suck anymore and it was just almost like heaven on earth to him so he goes to this hypno um hypnosis guy trying to see if the hypnosis guy can induce the dream where he can basically stay there forever but you know of course it has a bad ending and all of that because all of my books i think end poorly but you know it was more of a very it's very short it's like 66 pages it's almost like a twilight zone episode but i really like that story i think that's a great one and that came from you were talking about the real life implications of the real life inspiration i kept dreaming about a summer camp for some reason for a while oh and and i just i just i don't know what it was but i just sort of like i said i was basically writing a you know a thing about my life basically in a way not not telling my story because i actually finally did that in k as a way came out and i don't know if i was even writing it when we talked last time but that came out and that was almost like a autobiography about my actual life it's um because i had a cancer scare i think that was before we even met though but i'd written it basically as sort of like i don't want to be a like we were talking about with the legacy thing just to break off of that for a second i, I wrote k as a way because I did not want to just be another headstone in the cemetery with a story that was never told. Mm -hmm. For some background context, um, initially when me and Jack spoke, we're thinking about talking about like not leaving the legacy. And that's where uh, he's going with this because um, you're writing it because you had that cancer scare, which it's it was just a scare, correct? Yeah, it was just okay. a scare. So, yeah, that's that's good. I mean, it's not good, but it's better than it being. Um, not a scare, so. Yeah, but I mean, I wrote that and I put it out and that didn't really sell well, but I wasn't trying to sell it anyway. I just kind of wanted it to exist. And the the title is really like based around my ex that I, my most recent ex, it was a year ago, but, you know, drama for another day. But I mean, I, the story was based around our horrible relationship and all of that but that's only like the last 40 pages and i was gonna eventually it was originally just gonna be a 40 or 50 page thing but i was like well if i'm gonna go this deep into something that happened for real i'm just gonna tell the entire story so you know if i have cancer and because i had a uh step-grandfather that didn't even know he had cancer and then uh one night he just got really sick went to the hospital three days later he's dead from stage four cancer you know i just but he didn't know somehow just you know, when I heard that it was possible, you know, I started thinking, I don't want to end up like him, you know? Mm -hmm. Horrible how fast it goes through the body. That, I mean, that was just shocking. Like, he just went to the hospital, and that was it. Three days later, he was done. So that was one of your books that didn't really have as much of a twist then? No, K's Away didn't. But it was an autobiography, kind of. Yeah, I mean, fictionalized. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, just, you know, that you have to kind of hit the highlights like you know i mean it was 400 pages which i'm still when i saw the book today because i'm sending my ex a copy i know that's going to make her so mad but i don't care but um that's the whole point is i want her to have a copy of this book because she's in it you know and i, I pulled it out of the packaging just to see it because i don't even own a copy because i refuse to own a copy because it's just so such a negative book you know with so much negativity and drama and stuff in it you know that I don't want to have it myself, but I pulled it out of the packaging just to make sure this was the book. And my God, that thing is thick. I forgot. It. That's I didn't realize. I forgot that how thick 400 pages was. That thing is a, a monster. Lift some weights it, a bit. That thing weighed something. Yeah, I'm like, oh Lord, that's going to cost me something to ship. <laughs> but whatever, you know, she's going to get it, and you know that'll be probably drama for another day but whatever i want her to have it because i don't know i don't know why i want her to have it but she'll get it i hope hopefully <laughs> i'm still why? into an old address that she might have moved over a year ago i don't know but 
guess you'll find out. Why do you why do you think cuz she's cuz she you know, some of your life stories based off I mean, you were hurt by her. Um so why do you think because she was kind of part of what was written in it uh she should have a copy? I think part of it is revenge actually. I wrote <laughs> the thing partially out of revenge. I mean, cuz she was an she was a an emotionally abusive woman, you know, very emotionally abusive and very manipulative. So very, very sociopathic. When I look back in retrospect, how do you think you're going to feel if you get that, uh, quote unquote revenge? I mean, there's no destination, but if you did get the quote unquote revenge, how do you think that'll make you feel? I don't know. It's just, I'm trying to stop the nightmares is what I want. And you kind of get, what do these nightmares look like? It's just her being in a dream period is a nightmare, even if it's a good dream with her. Kind of. Just, just I can't. See, anytime I hear the word Portland, I start, it just brings me. See, even saying it's screwed me up. Anytime I hear that word, whether it's Maine or Oregon, I just, it flashes me back to that fateful night where it all went down, where she said all that awful stuff to me. And, it just drives, puts me into a deep, dark depression and just messes me up. Anytime I see her face, I just feel my, like I got shot in it. Like literally physically feel like I got shot in the chest. I mean, it hurts so bad. Like, you know, just seeing her face or seeing her name or seeing her out, the, out in the wild. I just, dude, I man, she just, she ripped me apart, man. And I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything wrong to this woman. You know, she just was crazy. That's all it was. She was crazy. Mm. And she told me she was crazy up front. And for some reason, I kept ignoring all the signs of, you know, her being crazy, the scam baiting thing, which I think is, oh my God, I think anyone that partakes in that is an insane, you know, person. I think that's a very sociopathic hobby that should just not be endorsed by anybody. So what exactly is the hobby called scam, scam baiting? What they basically do is these people will, they'll find these Indian scammers, right? And what they'll do is they'll make up these wild stories of like these lives that, you know, they'll just, for example, here's one, for example, I don't think all of them do it, but she took it to such an, an extreme level that it made me start realizing, wait a minute, this girl is a, is just psycho or whatever, because and she did videos on YouTube for it. They're probably still up, but she, there was this guy that was from India. And I don't know if he was trying to scam her or what it was, but she found this guy from India and she did what she called a love scam, quote unquote, where basically she acted like she was interested in him and liked him and she wanted to be his girlfriend and all this other stuff and led the guy on and all this stuff. I don't know why, but she just did that and just, you know, just tore this guy apart. Like she did me, you know, she, she just has fun manipulating gaslighting and abusing people i guess do you think having these crazy exes or how do you think having these crazy exes like doing scam baiting and just all the stuff they've said to you and done to you do you think that helps your horror writing uh in a sense or how do you think it helps it in a sense i did an episode of my show terror tracks called use your pain and i think that more or less any type of traumatic event can be turned into great fiction because that my best not best selling but best reviewed like the most reviews and almost all of them are universal five stars is the suicide diaries which really is a non-fiction book that non-fiction stories put into a fictional setting about a guy that goes back to his hometown and he just sees like the ghost of his past and he Here's their stories and just like they go into like these deep conversations about why the person died or, you know, just different things in their life. And like a lot of those stories about, you know, the girl at the playground that was beaten by her alcoholic parents and then she ran away and no one ever saw her again, you know, and nobody knew what happened to her. Or the guy that became an author and, you know, offed himself at some point and just, you know, all these people just, it's like this grand reunion of all these people that this guy knows that are part of this town you know and you know a lot of that came from real life you know and that was another one of those that i was having nightmares about my stepmother being alive again and uh, that was the central plot he was going home to make sure she was still dead yeah you know you know what i think might be kind of interesting remember that one time you said you were kind of dreaming of being at a summer camp 
Yeah. Maybe that was that one just escape reality. Like you weren't getting those crazy nightmares. I mean, maybe you were, but it was just that a relieving dream for once. I need more of them. <laughs> I would love more of them. I've been having, I know it's eventually going to have to happen. I keep having those stupid Billy Madison dreams. And I don't understand why I keep having, that's what I call them. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but have you ever seen Billy Madison? I haven't. No, tell us a little bit about it. That's an Adam Sandler movie from the nineties where he was, you know, the same age as he is, was in that point. So I guess in the, his middle twenties, maybe his thirties, I don't know how old he is now, but you know, he was old an adult. And the whole plot is that he has to go back and pass all the grades, you know, kindergarten through 12 at the same age he's at. So he can get his father's hotel chain because he's a slacker and an idiot and all that. So, you know, he has to basically go back to kindergarten in his 20s. And, you know, he goes all the way up to 12th grade and all that. And it's a really cool movie and a really cool concept. And just it's that dream that you're back in school, but you're still your same age. And you're like, what am I doing here? And then it's just like, you know, I don't need to be here. I've already been through all this BS. Why am I here this time? You know, what am I doing here? Where? You know, where's the smoking area? I need a cigarette. You know, stuff like that. I would do side note, but I would I would do high I would do high school completely different if I could go back. If I could if someone said you gotta do high school again, I'd just take a shotgun to the face. <laughs> like no I would not do it again. I hated high school. I hated school. I hated you know, I didn't like college that much either. I didn't I just, I did it. I even did a podcast episode. I deleted it cause it was too political, which, which is called abolish public schools. And it was a 45 minute tirade about this public school system. It's like, I got to get my thoughts out. I... Yeah. And then just, and I finally got rid of it cause it just wasn't a tracks episode. It was just me getting angry and, you know, throwing fireballs for 45 minutes about it. Yeah what what helps you kind of write or like what gets the audience to get scared i have no idea <laughs> uh just you you cannot predict what the audience is gonna like you could write something that you think is an absolute turd or just like a five out of ten and they'll think it's a ten out of ten i thought the suicide diaries was terrible i thought it was pretentious and i thought it was just just overblown garbage in my opinion i don't know i mean that's what i think but the audience liked it and that's great you know i'm happy that they enjoyed it and you know i'm proud of the fact that they enjoy it but on my personal list of from my memory but it might be different when i listen to it again you know if i whenever i do maybe i'll find out that it's my favorite book i don't know i thought the ghostwriter murders was weak until i listened to the audiobook and i was like oh my god i actually wrote that you know i was really impressed that it came out that well because i i thought it came out mediocre but it really came out well i mean i, I like that story that was good very good goosebump sort of story that came out of that so not trying to toot my own horn but i usually hate all of my books until i hear them again and then i actually kind of like them it's funny how once when you work on something so much and then you just take a fat break from it you go back to it and you're like oh that's actually good. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good one. And, you know, I've just, I think I have a copy of every book I ever wrote, except for K's Away, because I just refuse to have that one. I need to go to the bank at some point. And I got them all in like a safety deposit box where you know, just the first copies of every book ever printed. You know, I take it and I sign it and, you know, put the number on it, you know, number one. So I know that that's the one. And, um, you know, I do the same thing with like cover revisions. When it gets a new cover, I got to print a new copy of it and uh, get it sent to me and all that. And I just number them and everything. But I need to get a bigger safety deposit box, I guess, because <laughs> I think I might have was able to fit like five of them in there. And then it was it. And it was like, ah, uh, it's not too much. I've too just many. been putting it off, though. By putting it in that box and signing it, you're kind of adding to your legacy. Yeah, I mean, I don't want the original copies to be ruined or whatever. And maybe if I, you know, I can pass them down to my non-existent kids that will never be born and never, <laughs> never happen because <laughs> I don't want kids. But, you know, maybe I'll pass them down to, I don't know, my sister or something. I don't know. She's older than me. She might go before me. I don't know. But um, I'll pass them down to somebody you know 
if I ever get a long-term girlfriend or like a life girlfriend or whatever, cause I don't want to get married either. <laughs> you know, whoever I'm dating at the time, they'll get all my, uh, you know, final proofs. So ladies, if you want to get a lot of money in about, I don't know, 10 to 50 years, go ahead and, you know, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hook you up in the safe. I'll hook you up. It's in the safe. You might get a whole $10 for all of them. You never know. Okay, what? Let's let's see. Let's try to keep this Halloween themed, I guess. Cuz you you can't pinpoint what your audience finds scary. Do you have any tactics writing towards uh which kind of makes it more scary? I just try to write the best story I can. I don't really think about making scary or whatever cuz scary is you know, something fear is subjective, you know, some things will scare some and some things will not scare others. But I just try to write the best story I can, but the themes are dark. And I think the majority of my work really isn't even horror anyway. It's more like paranormal thriller, psychological thriller, psychological horror kind of, I don't know. It's not really like when I read a creepy pasta, that some of that stuff scares me to death, you know, this creepy pasta, but I feel like my work is more, I don't know how to put it. Like, like, you know, how like Stephen King really isn't that scary, but he's a horror author. That that's what I think of it sort of as it's like, it's not that the stories aren't necessarily scary, but they have those elements and some, you know, under morning star had a lot of horror in it. So that's a horror novel, but I don't, I don't ever think of stuff like bring me a dream dreamer. Um, the last ride stuff like that. I don't think about any of that as like horror though. It's just. I guess I'm, I don't even know if I'm a horror author sometimes. I See, but other people might say, oh my God, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever read. But to me, I feel like I'm almost like a thriller author, like a psychological or horror thriller or whatever. I like to write a lot. Of, a lot of my stuff is mystery too, so. I see that. Um, it's uh, not jump scare. Well, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I've obviously not read any of the books, but uh, what I get at is it's, the tone you set versus like those jump scares and whatnot. Yeah. I don't think jump scares are good. I don't, I think they're the, I was watching Halloween two, the original earlier. And I used to say that that was my favorite horror movie until I watched it today. And I still gave it a nine out of 10, but at the same time I took a point off because of the jump scares. Cause that was just unnecessary. Cause I don't think the original had that many jump scares, if any, um, even though the original was incredibly boring, like the first hour was just nothing. And I forgot how sterile the first hour of Halloween one was. And, you know, I get it, you know, the, it's a classic and it's a good film, but if you're going into that movie expecting, you know, something like the Friday, the 13th movies or Freddy or anything that has like a, you know, real horror going on. There's really not much, but the last 30 minutes is some of the best horror cinema ever created. Like all the stuff from, uh, I guess like when Lori goes in the guy's house across the street where he's already killed, you know, the three people that he's going to kill in the movie. And I think everything from that, like, I guess like from the time that he kills the chick in the car. And then I think that forward is where it really shined. But the last 30 minutes is a horror masterpiece, but most of that movie is just nothing. Nothing's going on. Just teenagers walking around talking about nothing. And then, you know, Michael Myers is staring at him. I mean, it's just, that's it. Him to die kids. But Halloween two fixed all that. Halloween two was great because it picked up directly after the, the ending of Halloween one. And it was a more traditional slasher with a higher body count, a lot better atmosphere. I think it really took the things that were strong about the original that I thought were great in the last 30 minutes and put that throughout the entire movie. So it was, I just loved that movie, but the jump scares are a bit annoying, but they're not nowhere near as bad as modern jump scares where it's like a really loud noise and unneeded at all. But you know, he does jump out and get you, but I guess it's a horror thing, but you know, I think that I think Friday the 13th did it pretty well. The, thing about like you know the kills not all being jump scares you don't have to capitalize some type of musical sting every time jason shows up but i might be wrong maybe they did do that in those movies i haven't seen them in a while either so i need to watch all them but right now i'm focusing on halloween 
and I have to watch Halloween three. Um, I don't think it might be tonight. I don't know, but Halloween three is the one without Michael Myers, the only one without Michael Myers, and I've never seen it. So it's a completely blind movie for me. And not really blind, but I mean I know that I've seen bits and pieces and I've seen a review here or there of it where people did a play by play, but I've never sat down and personally experienced Halloween three myself. You know, I've never sat down and actually saw it because you know when i was when you watch a review from somebody like decker shadow or uh the nostalgia critic or any of these people you know they're great i love them i'm not trashing them at all but i'm saying when you watch their reviews you kind of lose you don't get that atmosphere you don't get the small little hints and winks and nods to the previous movies and you don't get everything you would if you watched it yourself which obviously you can't because they're condensing an hour and a half into 20 minutes but you know, I need to sit down with Halloween three and just, just absorb it, you know? And I think Halloween three really might be one of the best ones. I'm kind of looking forward to it because from what I remember, it's the most Halloweeny movie, you know, it has the best atmosphere of an actual Halloween season. Cause I feel like the first two didn't have that much Halloweeniness to it. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't that much trick or treating or um, you know, there was people walking around in costumes and stuff, but there wasn't nothing compared to what I think the third one's going to be, where it's going to be a lot heavier with that Halloween, like not movie, but Halloween real life, you know, stuff. So I think it's going to be interesting, but I really need to watch that. And I, I'm just, I think it's going to be good. And a lot of people got mad at it because it didn't have Michael and I think, you know, that's fine. You know, it's, it's Carpenter. I, I can deal with it because I like Carpenter, so. Yeah. Do you think with uh, Halloween movies being labeled Halloween-y, do you think that's separate from horror itself? Or do you think Halloween is horror? I really wish they did not name Halloween Halloween, like the movie series Halloween, because it really doesn't have that much to do with Halloween the holiday. I mean, it happens. Michael Myers comes back to his hometown on Halloween and kills people, but it's not really that it doesn't have that much to do with Halloween itself. Like the holiday, you know, and I don't know why they even called it Halloween. I think it was originally called the babysitter murders, which would have made a lot more sense, but I don't know. I mean, it's been 40, 50 years now. I don't know. It's been forever. First one came out in 1978, so you do the math on how long it's been. But you know, I just what's that been like? Forty years, I guess. That's over early 40s now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a little bit early 40s. Wow. So and it's kind of sort of like we're never going to get back to the original sort of atmosphere and Michael being super slow and all that and. You know, that was one thing that I kind of noticed in Halloween 2 was he seemed a lot less worried about killing Laurie than he was in Hall In Halloween 1, he seemed a lot more, you know, when he was chasing her, he was actually walking a lot faster and more like a regular person. But in the second movie, he just seemed like he was just on like slow motion a lot of the thing. Like he was very slow everywhere he went and was sneaking around that hospital a lot, which is fine. but it just kind of made me wonder, do you really want to kill this girl or you just want to mess with her? Or, I mean, what's going on here? You know, you're kind of not making me feel like you want to kill her, you know, cause Jason actively pursues someone. Michael just sort of like, you know, creeps along towards you in this film. I haven't watched a whole lot of films, so I'm... you got to see the first two Halloweens. So they're, they're great. If you skip through the first hour, of Halloween one and then watched Halloween two right after it's really one of the best horror things ever. Cause it just has such great cinematography. It is Halloween two is a beautifully shot movie. And so is Halloween one where they really, the camera angles, the lighting, the atmosphere, the music, the, the, the sense of dread, especially the first one had a lot more dread than the second one. And, um, that's one thing I really did get right was the dread and just that final confrontation between Laurie and Michael was so good. And 
you know, I, I think that that the ending of Halloween one is one of the most iconic scenes in all of horror where, you know, Michael's trying to kill Lori one last time. Like he's choking her in the hallway and Loomis runs up the stairs and shoots him six times and he falls off the balcony. That was great. And I still, uh, I still really love that scene. It's one of the best scenes in horror to me. I bet I should definitely go see it. What, it, what type of things do you look for in a Halloween movie? I don't really know at this point because I mean, well, really, I mean, it's like Michael. All right. So here's the difference between the, the killer. So it makes more sense. Michael Myers was always, or at least in the first uh, four or five movies, he was always about stealth. He was never a juggernaut like Jason. You know, he could take, you know, he could get shot and he would fall down and he'd get back up, you know, after he played dead for a few minutes. But, you know, Michael to me was the scariest because it's realistic that a crazy guy could escape the asylum, grab a William Shatner mask and go kill people. And that, that that's he was the scariest because that and ghost faces too, because he's realistic. Jason is more of a juggernaut. He'll just run after you and start killing people. You know, he's just he doesn't really try to sneak around that much. I Me mean, did some, but nowhere near as much as Michael, where they would have these these shots, like one shot that I loved, and it's in Halloween too, is the girls on the phone, and like you can see the back door in the background while she's talking on the phone, she's turned towards the camera. And, the, and you can see behind her, Michael slowly opens the back door and he sneaks into this girl's house. And like, she doesn't know he's in the house and you don't know where he is in the house either. So he could be anywhere. And yeah. I love that. The, the stealthy, scary nature of, you know, you, it's, that's terrifying thinking that someone could be in your house and you have no idea that they are in your house. And we sit here now, I am thinking that, and it's a scary presence. <laughs> it is scary. Although I'm not home alone right now, so. It does help. I don't think, I don't think that many, it always kind of seems like most slasher villains don't really kill people when they're in groups. I mean, Jason did in the later movies, but I don't remember Michael really killing that many people that were in big groups. Like you never see him going into a party, just stabbing everybody. Until Halloween Kills, which I just watched a few days ago. From there. Where he doesn't care if you're in a crowd or not. Like, hey, buddy, you're dead. But I, I did like how I think Halloween Kills was great. I really thought the trailer sucked. Like, I was thinking, oh, God, here we go. It's just going to, they're just going to turn him into Jason and it's going to be boring. And he's just going to kill people in these extremely gruesome ways, which he did. He killed people in some gruesome ways. But I feel like they, they almost had, like, for the first time, in probably 30 years the the director at least cared enough to try to bring back some of the atmosphere and the feeling of halloween one and two like i think he really he watched those movies and realized well i can't make these movies again because that's a 40 year old format and theme and you know we just made a movie that you know we're doing a sequel to this movie where it wouldn't fit the the theme or style i guess but they really they 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 did good the halloween kills is, might be the Hall best halloween movie and i, I say that as a halloween 2 fanboy but it might be the one of the best ones this is definitely in the top four and they just they got it was almost like a perfect blend of old halloween and new halloween you know because i thought halloween 2018 sucked but you know they they did this one and i think they really they had they had like certain moments of brilliance which just made me just so impressed with what they were doing but there was never anything stupid and like they did this thing in the movie that i absolutely love that they i don't think they ever really did except for in halloween 2 which wasn't even that much in Halloween too is instead of, you know how like in most, you know, slasher movies, they have the killer kill somebody and that's it. You know, the, the person dies and you forget about them and that's it. You know, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if you've ever watched it, many slashes, but that's how it is. The guy dies and we never hear about him again. This movie Halloween kills really kind of took a more realistic approach that these deaths meant something to the people. You know, like you saw the devastation when the families watched the people that got killed coming into the hospital or, 
you you saw like this desperation this this frustration this stuff where instead of you know rooting for michael seeing like you know the awesome kills he does you're really it makes you want to see him get killed you see what the the families felt and it makes you feel bad it actually made you care about the victims for once and i was like that's never happened in a horror movie so bravo that they were able to pull that off you know just i wasn't i was just blown away that they were able to pull that off yeah most end up in like these npc non-playable characters type of deaths yeah. and you're like yeah who cares and then it sounds like that one i get you feel that empathy you're like i was my grandson even though you're not even related to them yeah it just made me feel like you know what he needs to they need to just go kill him just you know I, i'll jump in the truck with the rest of the rednecks and go kill him you know at this point i was getting i was getting into it man and i really i, I just that was a great movie i need to i really for for the only time in my life i saw a movie watched it all the way through and now i want to watch it again like now like not even a day or two later i want to watch it all over again right after this podcast you're gonna go watch yeah, it. <laughs> i might go watch it again it was just such they did it right they finally did it right they they you know i love halloween period but the funny thing is the more i think about the movies the more i'm starting to put h2o as one of the worst ones which used to be one of my top ones, but now the more I think about it, H2O kind of sucks, you know, it's just, it was where they tried to basically, the, the, the writer that did Scream, you know, with Ghostface and all that, Kevin Williamson, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. He wrote the script for Halloween H2O and it shows like <laughs> to a really bad extent. It <laughs> shows that this is basically a, uh, scream movie with michael myers and it does not work it, it just it we're talking i mean the funny thing is scream took a lot of inspiration from halloween and they even in the in the final act of scream the people in the house where everybody's getting killed they're watching halloween on the tv like the original halloween in this movie so in one movie they're watching another movie for real and then Halloween sees how big Scream was, and they get the writer from Scream to write a Halloween movie. And it just, it didn't work. I mean, I, I don't know what it was. It just didn't work. It just, it was so 90s that it didn't fit at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't. The... It, it just, it was too, the 90s had such a distinct style for the horror genre, at least. And I think Scream is great, and it was my first horror movie, and I always will love that movie, but it just, it that style works for Scream, but it doesn't work for Halloween at all. Like, it just doesn't. How does music play a role into, like, Halloween or Scream or, I mean, even H2O, where the movie was straight up bad? Music needs to be subtle, for one. Music should not be the source of scaring the audience or having jump scares music is supposed to um give you a background sort of layer i guess that 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 is very that's subtle enough that it doesn't get in the way of the action but amplifies the atmosphere so music shouldn't be taken front center stage it should just be there for atmosphere and that's that's a problem that I had watching the first Halloween the other night, because I think I watched a re-edited version, you know, cause the studios keep messing with stuff and changing the soundtrack or changing the sound design, or for some reason they keep changing the gunshot sounds from old movies, which I just don't get weird. You know, uh, they, they do. I mean, if you watch the original Terminator, the gunshots had this loud boom, you know, like this, that loud sort of dirty, hairy, like you know when you hear that gunshot it's really loud and mean sounding and then they make a gun that has no silencer on it sound like it has a silencer on it i'm like why do you do that it just you sounds like a pea shooter now why did you even why did you change the gunshot sound that's stupid you know and they do that a lot in those movies and they did it in this one where like every time michael showed up he would just have this little stupid like really ear piercing sting like dee -dee -dee, just every single time 
And but then I saw the scene of like the final chase with Laurie from I guess it was the original, and there was no sting when he showed up. Black, that's weird. So like, why did you do that? Just why do you, I don't need a little thing every time he shows up to tell me he showed up. I can see him. What about with the music? Doesn't that kind of sometimes it needs to bring anticipation? So it, I mean, it needs that. Uh, what's that word? I forgot. Um, I'm like body languaging it, but I'm not. I'm forgetting the name of it. The you said it earlier. What what's the word? It needs to add atmosphere. Atmosphere, yeah, atmosphere or like the ambience. Um, yeah. How can you get some anticipation with that atmosphere? I think the best way to explain how to do that correctly is like Jaws. You know, where it starts off really slow and just kind of quiet and then just slowly builds up as the shark comes closer and closer. Because if you think about it, Jaws wouldn't be as scary if it didn't have that, you know, that, that, um, I don't know if it's cello or what instrument it is that gives it that, that sound that they used, but it worked. Yeah. I mean, like just do what I said, it worked. Um, but playing devil's advocate doesn't. Isn't that a cliche now? It's happened so many times. Well, it wasn't a cliche when the movie came out was the thing. So you just got to take it in that context, I guess. Yeah, but and, I, um, I just kind of imagine like like that same, that same sort of anticipation, just different scenarios. Like you're about to open, you're about to go look under the bed. The music goes, except not shark music, but and then pop, there's a monster under the bed. The thing is, I think that that's one fear that I think is is a great one that's completely underutilized in horror is the monster under your bed. There are very few movies that I can name off the top of my head where there ever is a monster under someone's bed. You know, I think the, the they did it in Halloween 4 where Michael Myers was under the little girl's bed, and that was terrifying. And then they didn't do it with any of the Jasons or any of the Freddies or any of that. But I think the only other time I could think of a monster under someone's bed was an, are you afraid of the dark episode where it had Bobcat Goldthwait was under someone's bed and that was it. But you know, that's a, you know, I think that another one, another cliche that I think might be a little overused, but it still scares me is, you know, you're brushing your teeth, you go down to the sink to rinse your mouth out, and then you go back up and look in the mirror, and there's someone behind you. Oh. Goes back to someone, there's someone watching you right now. Yeah. I mean, like, there was, like, this one, um, I used to do, like, a Two Sons Creepypasta intro with tracks, and um, one of them, what was it? Oh, Roses are red, violets are blue. blue. There's someone right behind right you behind or something. That's a good way to hook someone. I forgot what it was. Some, it was um, it was something like I forgot. It was something where someone was right behind you. It was like, you know, you can look to, under your bed, look in the closet, look to your left, look to your right, but don't look up. She doesn't like being seen. That like stuff like that is scary. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah. Uh, you know, or um, I was laying in my bed one night and I could hear breathing. My wife died years ago, uh, or I live alone. I see eyeballs. It just—I think one of the best. If you want, if you want that atmosphere and the um, the beauty of a movie, the way it's shot, the way the atmosphere is played, I think the king of that is Suspiria which is a Dario Argento film from the seventies. And that movie isn't, I wouldn't, don't know if it's really, you would say it's scary and it's not really a great movie plot wise either. It's really pretentious, but it's just a beautiful film to watch. Like it's just, it has all these colors and the atmosphere is incredible. And it's just a really, it's a really pretty movie is what the best way to put it. And just, there's no other movie I can think of that is as pretty as Suspiria was like the way they shot everything. And, you know, I'm not even like a film student. I'm not a director or anything, but you know, I'm just a horror guy and horror is all about atmosphere, but you know, I just love that film. And that one really inspired the clock tower series all the way to the point where there was a few scenes 
and Suspiria that were completely just lifted directly and put into the first clock tower game. And um, which I think is probably the scariest game ever made. I think clock tower is that or Silent Hill one. Those two are probably the most terrifying games of all time. Maybe clock clock tower is probably scarier. What clock is that tower game? Is, that's an old, well, they made uh, games after, but it was the original I'm talking about was on the super Nintendo. And it's like a point and click game where, you're in like this mansion and you're like trying to, I guess, solve puzzles or trying to get out of it alive. But every so often, like you're pretty much running away from like the serial killer that has like hedge, like hedge clippers. And he's always chasing you and you have, you can't fight him. You have to hide. Like, you know, he shows up and you hear his shears coming and he'll pop up in different places and you just have to find some place to hide or he'll kill you. Yeah, that sounds pretty intimidating. It is, it is scary, it, it, dude. It is just terrifying. <laughs> it's what it is that I'm not scared of much, but that was just oh my god, that that you. that thing is just scary, dude. Just oh my god, because you can't fight back and you can't do nothing. All you can do is run away and hide. Hope he doesn't find you again. And then he finds you again. Yeah, and he just like he'll show up in the same room and you're just like sitting there tense, like. Does he see me? Is he going to get me? Is he going to get me? Please don't get me. And there's nothing you can do about it. And he's just, he's just there. And it's just like, am I screwed? And it's just like, oh my God, dude, it is, it's scary. Um, I think this is actually a good spot to kind of close off. So uh, this is one last question. What is your uh, favorite food made with dough? Pizza. Pizza? Yeah. Yep. It's pretty solid. Love it. I, had it, I had some yesterday. It's good. Good stuff. Cool. And then do you want to just plug your podcast, your book, anything? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, if you want to listen to the show, just go to terratracks.com slash listen. That's T R A X. So Terra, T E R R O R T R A X dot com slash listen. And if you want to buy the books or just support the show in any way, you can go to terratracks.com slash shop where it'll have like links to the books and everything. So thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, ton of fun, Jack. Then that's where it's at to go get those books. Uh, so we'll finish off this piece of dough today. Do you We now move on to our next piece of dough. All right, we are here uh, cooking the dough, and I'm gonna talk about what I dressed up. I don't know if I'm going trick or treating. I'm recording this on October 30th but I did dress up for as a Halloween costume for work. I was on a budget and I realized, hey, what's something I could do that's cheap? Um, to find this costume, I haven't mentioned what it is yet, but how I found about it was I went on Reddit and I'm like, hey, well, I just searched. I didn't post anything. But I'm like, hey, what are some cheap Halloween costumes? And I saw a few pop up. There was like zombies. Um, I don't remember a lot of them. But yeah, I know zombie was one of them. One of the other ones I was considering was being a bunch of grapes. Uh, let me explain. That's basically you tape a bunch of purple balloons or whatever, and you're a bunch of grapes. So simple, so cheap. However, I ended up going with one of the suggestions, which was an autograph book, which I've never seen anyone do. So I felt like it was pretty original. Um, and if I wanted to go get anyone's phone numbers, uh, it's right there. Sign me. I got your phone number, foo. Um, I don't ever leave the house, though, so I don't know how much that actually works. But I got a lot of signatures, and that, that's dope. Uh, basically, what I did is I just uh, I got a white pair of pants, a white t-shirt. I just wrote autograph on both sides, and then I just put my phone numbers because I have three different ones. One's a free one from like a free texting app. The other is my main phone service that I actually pay for, and then the other one, I pay for it. It redirects. It's like Google Voice. It redirects your phone number so that I can give one out publicly and if I ever need to get rid of it that's easy enough or I don't know it's just secure I can publicly give that phone number yeah so I just put all those phone numbers on that t-shirt that way it had, had a start and I called that my Halloween costume and then I had white shoes I mean I always wear these nothing new on that um so yeah it was very simple it only cost me 16 dollars and that's the other thing I wanted to talk about because I already had white t-shirts, so I just needed white pants because all my pants, either khakis or they're black. Um, I would like to just own two pairs of black jeans. 
However, that's not the case right now. So, yeah. The what I did is I went to it's I don't know what type of mall you call it. It's a type of mall though. They don't all connect to each other, but they're all right next to each other. It's in like a plaza, I guess. Um, but I just looked around. I was trying to see what I could find. And the first few stores either didn't have white pants or they did and they were like 40 bucks and I wasn't going to spend 40 bucks for a pair of pants. Um, but anyways, I kept walking around and I r- ran into Burlington, which had a pair of white sweatpants or joggers, whatever you want to call them. They have fake pockets, which irritates me so much. But yeah, they look fine. They're white and they did the job. So that was $16.99, I think. And then, yeah, just went home, put on a white shirt, and that's what I called it good for my Halloween costume. So I hope you guys have a good Halloween. Uh, Let me know what you guys are being for Halloween. So that's what I did for Halloween. Uh, That's what I'm wearing. And just thought I'd share that on this um, baking piece of dough. So we're going to finish off this piece of dough. All right, so the guest in this episode is Jack Pierce. Thanks again for being on. I would love to have you as a guest, the listener. Uh, There'll be info to sign up in the description. And if you're wondering what Linguini's dough is, at the moment, I'm trying to figure that out. I, I just like listening to people and here's a podcast about that. So I'm kind of figuring out what the niche is right now. It's a process, but the whole metaphor is that dough can be baked into bread, uh, pizza, just a bunch of other things. And so can the topic change. That's the overall metaphor for why it's named Linguini's Dough. And yeah, the voice actor in this video is user slash Lendry from Reddit spelled L-E-N-D-R-Y. Go check him out if you want a reliable voice actor. And then all music I use in this is from the YouTube audio library. So if you're interested, that's where you can find it. Anyways, thank you all. I'll see you on the flip side.